South Carolina, Cynthia and I did a little bit of a detour so that we could take in Sight and Sound Theater's original stage production of Jesus. I know the gardeners have made a trip down a few times, but anybody else been to Sight and Sound in Lancaster, Pennsylvania? Oh, a few of you. Boy, uh, it was wonderful. This year it's Jesus. Next year it's Queen Esther that we'll be playing. Allow me to read for you a word from the director found at the very beginning of the program that we received as we entered the theater. When we first set sail on this production, we immersed ourselves in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As we did, one word kept rising to our minds, rescue. As we read and reread the stories of the Savior, an overwhelming sense of God's love filled our hearts, love that rescues. That was it. That was the anchor that kept this portrayal of Jesus from drifting into the waters of endless possibilities. He left heaven. He lived among us. He strapped on sandals, rolled up his sleeves, embraced the untouchables, pursued the outcasts, opened the eyes of the blind, delivered the tormented, healed the sick, walked on water, and reached into the lives of those sinking beneath the storms of life. But he did not come just to rescue those few. What you are about to experience is not a history lesson on the most famous person ever to walk the earth. It is not even necessarily a story of Jesus' life. It is a story of Jesus' love, which we believe is life. Enjoy the greatest rescue story of all time. And indeed... We did. It's a great story. But what made it even more enjoyable for us was the time that we have spent over the last two years becoming familiar with Jesus' life through the Gospel of John. This is an amazing story of a pivotal, pivotal moment in the history of God's redemptive plan. That moment in human history when the Word of God became a man and dwelt among us. The first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John present the two, two and a half years of Jesus' public life and ministry. In chapter 13 through chapter 16, we find him sequestered in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem with those original 12. Four whole chapters reserved for Jesus just few hours on Thursday night. The next day, he would be crucified, Friday afternoon. And it is in the privacy of this upper room where we, where we find Jesus preparing his most intimate followers for his imminent departure. And much of what Jesus would have said that night would not have been things that these disciples, his disciples, would want to have heard. But chapter 16 ends with a shout of victory. Look at chapter 16, 
the last verse. Verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. It will not be easy, but Jesus wanted these 11 remaining disciples to know that they are playing for the winning team. And then we come to John chapter 17. Jesus is no longer talking to his disciples. He is talking to his Father who is in heaven. He's praying. And like the disciples, we too have an opportunity to listen in. But keep in mind that this is a private prayer. We are just eavesdroppers. A couple of weeks ago, we did a flyover of John chapter 17 and found Jesus prayed first for himself, then for his remaining 11 disciples, and finally, for those who would believe as a result of, the, of their message. Preparing for the future by praying today was the presented overall thrust of John chapter 17. Preparing for the future by praying today. So today and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to really begin to take a, a much closer look at John chapter 17. One that the one commentator describes it as one of the greatest chapters in the Bible and certainly one of the most treasured. Some refer to it as the Holy of Holies of sacred scripture, the revelation of the inner sanctum of Christ's heart as he bared his soul in a final public prayer to the Father before stepping into the night and onto the cross. This morning, we will focus on the verses that finds Jesus praying first for himself. And within these verses, we will identify four desires that compelled him to pray. Four desires that will compel us to pray. So if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning, beginning at verse 1 of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. You know us inside and out, through and through. 
nothing is hidden from your sight. And you want to be known intimately and personally. It is for that reason that you inspired the writers of these scriptures and then supernaturally preserved them. A written revelation of your person, your plans, your purposes, and even your perspectives. You want us to know you. These scriptures inform us that the same spirit that oversaw and preserved these writings now indwells each and every one, every genuine believer, all who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And so we pause to invite that spirit to enable us to hear, understand, and assimilate this, your word, to us this morning. May you use Jesus' prayer to transform us so that our prayer reflects your desires, things that concern you. And may our prayer serve to accomplish your plans and purposes in and through us, both individually and collectively. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Embracing desires that compel us to pray. My studies this past week, I came across the following. Prayerlessness plagues evangelical culture. We are too quick to talk about politics, too quick to enter theological debates. Meanwhile, we are too slow to pray. So what do you think? Agree or disagree? Do you find that assessment offensive? Or is there a ring of truth in your ears? There is no question living in the midst of the kind of prosperity that we enjoy here in Canada insulates us from some of the the harshest realities of life in this broken world. You can't argue that. And so often, it's when all else fails. Prayer becomes that option of last resort. Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. was asked this question. What happens after prayer? Here is part of his answer that I think is really relevant for what we're talking about this morning. There is a lot you can do to help the situation after you have prayed. There is nothing you can really do to help the situation until you have prayed. When we work, we work. When we pray, God, God works. And then this. And the things we need God to do in our lives, God has wisely, profoundly, and graciously made them available to us on the other side of prayer. Look at verse 1. 
Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The compelling desire here is obvious. It's the desire to see God glorified. Jesus asked his Father to glorify him so that he would be able to glorify his Father. It's not a selfish prayer. He was wanting his life to ultimately glorify the Father. And more specifically, he was asking that those events that lay directly ahead of him, the end of his life, would glorify his Father. In John chapter 13, verse 31, he was talking about the end of his life. In fact, Judas has just accepted that morsel of bread from his hand and departed. And Jesus says, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own, son, own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. And so now here in John chapter 17, just four chapters later, we find Jesus praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Doxadzo is the Greek word translated glorify. Literally, according to the Greek-English lexicon, it means to cause someone to have glorious greatness or to display one's greatness. To glorify someone means to bestow honor, praise, admiration on them. And Jesus' desire was that his death, resurrection, and ascension would reveal things about God that would cause us to praise him, honor him, and worship his Father for who he truly is, for who he claimed to be, according to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The same God who said, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And yet, here's Jesus asking the Father to glorify him. And it was for that reason that Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that he may glorify you. As a second person of the Trinity, that was an acceptable prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Someone has defined it this way. In general, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinite, beautiful, and personal being. And so if you or I were to catch a glimpse of this God, it would take our breath away. So awesome in the true sense of that word that we would want to immediately bow down and worship him. That was Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus was praying that his death, 
burial, and resurrection and ascension would become like a display window, putting on display the glory of his Father. It's so interesting to note that Jesus actually prayed this prayer, and it becomes an expression of dependence. Jesus was asking for his Father's help. He couldn't do this on his own. He was not flying solo. In order for his death, burial, and resurrection to glorify his Father, he would need the Father's help to display his greatness. So facing the most challenging events of his life, Jesus' primary concern or his compelling desire was to glorify his Father who is in heaven. So what are the implications of that? What does that tell us? Glorifying God is paramount. The Apostle Paul instructing believers that the the church at Corinth wrote these words. Whether then you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That sounds pretty inclusive to me. So I'm left wondering, what would that look like in your life and in my life? Doing everything, whatever we do, for the glory of God. Whether at home or at work or on the golf course. Cleaning the house or washing the car or folding the laundry. As a parent, a student, a friend, a neighbor. As a participant of the Rock Community Church. Do it all for the glory of God. What would that look like? What would it cost for you and I to do all for the glory of God in time, money, energies? Father, help. Enable us so that whatever we do collectively and individually, we do it all. All for the glory of God. Not to make a name for ourselves or to win the approval of others or to grow the Rock Community Church or to increase our circle of influence, but to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see? Embracing desires that compel us to pray. The first desire that will compel us to pray is a desire to see God glorified. And it's not something we can do apart from his help. Jesus knew that. And that's why he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Notice verses 2 and 3. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh 
that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is the compelling desire behind that expression? The desire to see others respond appropriately to the gospel. Jesus acknowledged that he had been given authority from God the Father so that he could give eternal life to those who had been given to him. What does it mean? The Father gave him authority over all flesh. Jesus is the line in the sand. The deciding factor when it comes to eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. Make it crystal clear. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus himself claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this authority empowered Jesus to give eternal life to all those who the Father had given him. This is not new information for those of us who've been in the Gospel of John for the last two years. John chapter 6, verse 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is using a shepherd-sheep analogy when he says much the same thing. Listen as I read from verses 27 to 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my Father has given them to me. He is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Wow. Beloved, God is intimately involved. Intimately involved in the lives of anyone who comes to that place in their life where they're willing to turn from their sin and begin trusting Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. We cannot figure this out on our own. We're not smart enough. It takes a divine intervention. Our sinful natures have left us impaired from the moment of our conception. In fact, 
left to ourselves, we will not seek God. We are spiritually blind, dead in our trespasses and sins. Getting into the kingdom of God, Jesus explained to his disciples, is similar to a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. And his disciples blurted out, who then can be saved? To which Jesus responds, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. God, in his mercy and grace, has made the impossible possible. As many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Jesus was empowered by the Father to give, to be the giver of eternal life. And eternal life means a whole lot more than just living forever and ever. Amen. All of us are eternal beings. We're going to live forever. We will die physically, but we will live forever. Look again at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life involves knowing both the Father and the Son. It is not about a destination, but a relationship. The meaning of the word translated knowing is a whole lot more than just knowing about him. Jesus is not talking about getting to heaven and living forever and ever. Although that is certainly the outcome of eternal life. Rather, Jesus is speaking of an intimate, personal, experiential, knowing that's based on a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And it is, it's an exclusive offer. It's only made available through Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father. And no one truly knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is the truth. The gospel calls us to turn from our sin by believing in Jesus. Believing that he was who he claimed to be, that he was fully God and fully man. That he did what the scriptures say he did. Dwelt among us. Committed no sin, in fact, lived a perfect life 
and then died to pay the price for our sin. And then finally, that he will do what he promised he will do. He will restore our broken relationship with God forever. And God is glorified when people respond appropriately to the gospel. You see, God is glorified when we are able to do things that only he can take credit for. And certainly, establishing a transforming relationship with our Father who is in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ alone is a great example of one of those things. Listen carefully to how the Apostle Paul begins his letter to the church at Rome. Beginning at verse 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. The New American Standard Bible, it's translated the gospel of God. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the good news about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell the Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them. So that, purpose statement, so that they will believe and obey him bringing glory to his name. There you have it. God is glorified when, in response to hearing the gospel, people believe and obey. Jesus knew that. And it compelled him to pray. Are you a genuine believer? Are you trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If not, why not? What's preventing you from responding appropriately to this gospel? From crossing over from death to life? And if you are a genuine believer... Are you desiring to see those in your circle of influence, people that you love, who you know are not, as far as you know, are not yet believers? Are you praying for them? Are you asking God for opportunities to share your faith with them? Praying that he would bring circumstances and other people into their lives that would soften their hearts. How prepared are you to share the gospel? Can you give a clear presentation of the gospel that invites unbelievers to establish a personal relationship with God? Embracing desires that compel us 
to pray. The desire to see God glorified and a desire to see people, especially those that we care for and love, to, to respond appropriately to the gospel will compel us to pray. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The desire to be a good and faithful servant. Jesus knew the accomplishment of the work that he had been given to do would glorify the Father. Accomplishing the work he had been given to do included all those things in the past two, two and a half years of his life. Things that he taught in John chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what to say and what to speak. The things that he taught. The things that he did. John 5, 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Jesus was in lockstep with the Father. Every step of the way. It was a life of perfect obedience. So much so, that at the end of his life, the very end, while hanging pinned to a wooden cross, he was able to say, it is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. William Barclay, in his commentary, cuts to the chase when he says, there's only one way to glorify God. Only one way, and that is to obey God. And Jesus did that perfectly. You see, God is glorified as we, you and I, accomplish the work he has prepared in advance for us to do. Two verses Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Second is Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He gave us life. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. That begs the question, how are you doing? How committed are we? Are we totally committed to doing the work that he's prepared in advance for us to do? Jesus told a parable that we often refer to as the parable of the talents. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. It's about a man who decided, that, a rich man, who decided that he was going to go on a trip. And so he brought in three of his servants and entrusted them with financial property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave three, to another he gave one. After a long while, he returned home, and he brought the servants in to give an account. And you know the story. The first two 
had invested what they had been entrusted with and doubled his money. And what did he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Who amongst us does not want to hear those words? When we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. But that living a life of obedience, that means living life of obedience in the short term, willing to make the kinds of sacrifices that will cost us, giving up pleasures, advantages, relationships, maybe even our own life. Jesus promised that it will be more than worth it in the end. Those are just temporary losses. Luke chapter 18, verses 29 to 30 reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Embracing desires that compel us to pray. The desire to see God glorified. The desire to see others respond appropriately to the gospel. And the desire to be a good and faithful servant. Notice verse 5. It's the last. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So what's the compelling desire behind that expression? The desire to be safely home in heaven. Jesus asked to be restored to the glory that he had with the Father, before the world was. Remember how the Gospel of John begins, John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was talking about a time even prior to the beginning of the world. Genesis chapter 1 reads, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So Jesus was referring to the time just before that. Before the world was. Philippians chapter 2 provides maybe a little glimpse into what he was talking about when it says that Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. His descent is described here. Did not think equality was, with God was something to be grasped. So he let go of it. He emptied himself. 
And then it goes on to describe what happened as a result of that emptying. So to reverse the process, instead of emptying himself, there will be an adding to himself. And there will be equality with God once again. Sitting down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. God is glorified when his children arrive safely home in heaven. Psalm 116 verse 15 reads, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Pastor Lance Johnson, a former pastor of Huron Park Baptist Church here in Woodstock, back in the 1980s when Cynthia and I were here as the associate pastor of Oxford Baptist Church. I attended a funeral that was being officiated by Pastor Johnson and his text was Psalm 116 verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the saint of his godly ones. And I don't know why I was there. I don't remember any of that. But what I do remember is at one point in his message, he asked us to listen to what is said in Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, this is Stephen, a follower of Christ, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen is being interrogated and stoned to death by the religious leaders of the day. And just before his stoning, this is what he sees. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Pastor Johnson then made a comparison with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, where we read, When God raised him, that's Jesus from the dead, and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And then Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Pastor Johnson went on to suggest that so precious in the sight of God at the death of his godly ones that Jesus stands to welcome them home. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I like the visual aid presented by the New Living Translation. He never sinned, but he died to bring us safely home to God. 
Do we see ourselves as pilgrims or residents in this world? Are we just passing through? Or are we really hanging on for dear life? Are we storing up treasures in heaven? Or are we preoccupied with the things of earth? The desire to see God glorified, the desire to see others respond appropriately to the gospel, the desire to live a good and faithful servant, the desire to arrive safely home in heaven. These kinds of desires, they compelled Jesus to pray first for himself. Embracing the desires that compelled Jesus to pray first for himself, embracing those desires, they compel us to abide with him in prayer. Four desires related to God's glory, God's message, desiring to see as many as possible come to know him, come to a saving faith. God's work, desiring to do all that we can possibly do, to be faithful with the opportunities that are right before us. God's home, looking forward to, be, to being absent from the body and safely home in heaven at last. Embracing these desires will compel us to abide with Jesus in prayer. Allow me to close by again reading those words that I found so relevant from H.B. Charles, Jr. There is a lot that you can do to help the situation after you have prayed. There is nothing you can really do to help the situation until you've prayed. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And the things we need God to do in our lives, God has wisely, profoundly, and graciously made available to us on the other side of prayer. Father, you are holy. The standard of perfection that you require for a relationship with you is beyond our reach. It's unattainable. But we are forever thankful for your mercy and grace that makes the impossible possible. Thank you for this record of Jesus' prayer, for the invitations to pray, and even the command to pray. May these desires displayed by Jesus become our desires so that we will be compelled to join him in prayer on an increasingly consistent basis.
not as a last resort, but as a desire to see you glorified. We've asked these things in Jesus' name. Amen.